You're listening to a sermon from Plus Life, a church that exists to see lives changed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Our prayer is that you will be stirred in your heart and renewed in your mind as you hear the preaching of God's word today. How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And he took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he went about among the villages teaching. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, great is your faithfulness. We thank you, Father, indeed for your steadfast love that you have shown us in Christ Jesus. And Lord, we come now, not based on our own righteousness, but because of your mercy, because of the righteousness of Christ. And we ask that, Father, you would feed our souls. You would open our eyes to see what we do not see. You would open our ears to hear what we do not hear. You would change our hearts to what you want us to be. We ask this prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. I don't know how many of you sitting here um, comes from a small town or a close-knitted neighborhood. The great advantage of these small towns or neighborhood with a very small population size is that it is great for community. And one thing you often hear about this kind of community is that everybody knows everybody. I remember one time back when I was in high school, early in the morning, my grandma came to my room and she lives at a different house, but she went for a walk with some older ladies. And then after a walk, she came straight to my room to wake me up and asked me, are you dating so-and-so grand's daughter? That's what a close-knitted community can be like. Everybody knows everything about everybody. Even a 70-year-old grandma can know what you're doing. There's the good and there is the bad. Jesus also grew up in a small town called Nazareth of about 500 people. And he had his fair share of challenge coming from there. He was born in Bethlehem, but was brought up in Nazareth. And this evening, as we look at today's passage and see the interactions of Jesus with his hometown, I would like you to take note of two spiritual dangers that could happen to us. And that two spiritual dangers that we should be extremely guarded against. The first is to beware of superficial familiarity toward Jesus, or else you will breed contemptuous unbelief. Beware of superficial familiarity towards Jesus, or else you will breed contemptuous unbelief, hateful unbelief, disdain. And the second is to beware of sinful unbelief toward Jesus, or else you will forfeit his blessing. Beware of sinful unbelief toward Jesus, or else you will forfeit his blessing. Let us dive into the text, and we shall see how these spiritual dangers unfold and apply to us as well. Let's begin from verse 1. He went away from there and came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. If you read the first chapter of the Gospel of Mark, you will discover that Jesus came from Nazareth and adopted Capernaum as his hometown 
to be the ministry base for his mission and works in the region of Galilee. And ever since Jesus left his hometown and began his ministry in Galilee, he had labored unceasingly for the sake of the gospel of the kingdom of God. He taught and preached in the synagogues. He called disciples to follow him and explain to them the things of God. He taught and preached to the multitudes. He casted out demons. He healed the sick. He calmed the storm. And he silenced the sea. And he raised a dead girl back to life. He dealt with the hostility of religious leaders and had to put up with misunderstanding from his own family members who thought Jesus was out of his mind. The scribes, the Pharisees, they, called, they, they considered Jesus demonic, but his family considered him lunatic. And perhaps it was the request from his mother that caused him to return to his hometown. Jesus went away from Capernaum and came to his hometown, Nazareth which was about 20 miles southwest of Capernaum and the Sea of Galilee. But more likely, this was more than just a family reunion. Jesus didn't return alone. Observe, his disciples followed him. Jesus was there to do public ministry and to prepare his disciples for the cost of following him. What he will go through, the disciples will go through. Verses 2 to 4 again. And on the Sabbath, he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, and brother of James, and Joses, and Judas, and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown, and among his relatives, and in his own household. Now, as was his custom, if you are going through the Gospel of John, you will realize Jesus went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, and he began to teach. Mark does not record for us what Jesus taught, but as usual, many who heard him were astonished. Throughout the Gospels, the teachings of Jesus is described to have an astonishing effect. Those who have heard him were mesmerized. They were captivated. They were enchanted because he did not teach like the scribes of the day. He taught with supreme knowledge and authority. He taught as one who is God. But just like most of the religious leaders that rejected the teachings of Jesus, the people of Nazareth were astonished, not positively, but suspiciously. And they questioned saying, where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by him? Notice, how they don't even refer to Jesus by name. They simply say, this man. Where did this man get these things? Even though they are from the same hometown, they didn't want to get too personal by referring to Jesus by name. They questioned the source of his teaching. They questioned the nature of his wisdom. They questioned the veracity of the works done by Jesus. They had witnessed Jesus growing up. They knew Jesus did not attend any rabbinic school, no seminary, no Bible colleges. And so instead of celebrating and receiving it with joy, they disregarded it with a skepticism. The wisdom of Jesus and the works that he had done should have objectively pointed to them that Jesus was from God and that he did not need any training uh, on the Word of God because he was the Word of God incarnate. He is the author of the Word of God. But just as the scribes attributed the source of Jesus' power to Satan, the people of Nazareth simply dismissed it. They ignored him. Moreover, look here, they tried to discredit him by bringing up his profession and family background. Again, verse 3 to 4. Is not this 
the carpenter, the son of Mary and brother of James and Joses and Judas and Simon, are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. Is not this the carpenter? The carpenter? The people of, Jesus, of Nazareth knew Jesus to be a carpenter because he left Nazareth to begin his ministry. Be, being the adopted son of Joseph, Jesus would have acquired the family business of Joseph. The townspeople knew Jesus only as a carpenter. At, at some point, they probably might have hired him to, to fix something or to build something. And so in their minds, how could this mere carpenter who worked with wood and stone without any educational background be teaching them, let alone claim to be the long-awaited Messiah of God? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? Pay attention to this. Even though Jesus is legally adopted by Joseph, they didn't refer to Jesus as the son of Joseph, but the son of Mary. Now, the normal Jewish practice was to identify a son by his father's name. But when the father is unknown, a man was called the son of his mother. So if people knew my son, Isaiah, they would call Isaiah, son of Chris. But if they didn't know who's the daddy, they would say Isaiah, the son of Angel. And so what they are doing right now is they're pointing to the rumors, to the rumors of of his illegitimate birth. Wasn't this the child of Mary who was pregnant before she was even married? They were trying to taint him, discredit him. The people of Nazareth also knew the siblings of Jesus. They knew Jesus was the brother of James and Joses, that's Joseph, and Judas and Simon. They even knew his sisters. In other words, don't we know his background? Don't we know his family? Didn't even his family go to Capernaum to seize him because they thought Jesus was out of his mind? I mean, what is there to entertain him if his own family doesn't believe in him, right? What is there to entertain him if his own family sort of considers him a black sheep, somebody who is not, out of his, not in his mind properly, you know? And they took offense at him. And they took offense at him. The word for offense comes from the Greek word scandalon, meaning a stumbling block. Jesus Christ became a stumbling block for them. They were deeply offended by Jesus, not because of what he taught, not because of his wisdom, not because of his mighty works. It was the background of Jesus that became a stumbling block for them. It was the familiarity with the background of Jesus that caused them to be offended by Jesus. And as the popular adage goes, Familiarity breeds contempt, and this is what happened with the people of Nazareth. These people had known Jesus for 30 years. They knew his early family. They might perhaps have hired him for service. They had seen him grow up right before their eyes. The daily exposure to his humility, to his humanity, had inoculated them, had vaccinated them to the greatness and the divinity of Jesus. They thought they knew him, but they didn't really know him, right? They thought they knew him, but they didn't really know him. And here is the first warning for all of us. Beware of the superficial familiarity towards Jesus, or else you will breed contemptuous unbelief. You see, it is not ignorance alone that prevented them from accepting Jesus. It is ultimately their arrogance. 
not ignorance alone, but ultimately their arrogance. It was their pride that refused to accept that Jesus could be greater than them, that Jesus could actually be God. It was their hardness of heart that espoused excuses to reject Jesus. And the irony is that if you know anything about the town of Nazareth, it was an obscure town. It had no reputation. That's like me telling you, I, guys, I'm from Tangra. You're like, what is this place? I don't know. Well, if you're from India and you're from Calcutta, you'll know where, where that is. I'm actually from Tangra, right? The, the other Jews would look down on those who came from Nazareth, make comments such as, can anything good come out of Nazareth? Remember the Gospel of John right in the beginning? Can anything good come out of Nazareth? And yet the people of Nazareth showed no humility and could not celebrate the works of Jesus, nor accept Jesus for who He revealed Himself to be by His mighty works, by His teaching. Likewise, my dear brothers and sisters, my dear church, and all of us gathered here and those of us listening online, are you in the danger of a superficial familiarity towards Jesus? You who are exposed to the word, you who are exposed to the truth of God, be very careful to guard your hearts from this superficial knowledge of Jesus. And I say superficial because true familiarity of Jesus and knowing Him for who He truly is and the great works of redemption that He has done on your behalf would humble you in adoration and complete submission to Him. You will worship Him if you know Him for who He is. True, saving knowledge of Jesus is accompanied by fruits of repentance and submission, the hating of sin, and an increasing love to walk in a way that pleases Him. But superficial familiarity towards Jesus abounds in the church and in our culture. You may have grown up listening to the Bible stories in Sunday school. You may have heard countless times how God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. You may have attended numerous Bible studies and fellowship. You have sat here Saturday or Sunday, Sunday after Sunday, Saturday after Sunday, uh, Saturday, <laughs> listening to sermons. You have grown up knowing about Jesus, but you do not know Jesus lovingly, savingly, experientially. You have grown up in the church, but you did not grow up in Christ. It is this kind of superficial familiarity of Jesus that breeds contemptuous unbelief, especially when tested, especially when it calls a demand in your life. When life gets hard or when confronted by the choice of pleasing the flesh or pleasing God, your superficial knowledge of Jesus will be revealed by your disdain, by your hatred towards the Christian faith, and your indifference towards the teachings of God. So what does this mean for us then? Does this mean we take away all the Bible studies? Do we, do we, do we eliminate any scripture in fellowship? Do, do we not teach our children about Jesus? Less of Jesus is more? Is that what you're saying, Brother Chris? That I should protect my children by not exposing them to Jesus? Absolutely no. That's not what I mean at all. It means we got to stop making Jesus our homeboy. It means we have to stop watering down the gospel of Jesus Christ and restore presenting the gospel of the glory of Christ in its fullness. Jesus is gentle and meek. He is compassionate and loving. He condescended Himself to receive repentant sinners with open hands. He will not cast away those who come to Him in faith. Jesus is the fairest and the kindest of all men. But let us 
let us not have an emotionalized, romantic view of Jesus that make him as the perfect bachelor. Almost like you are struggling with singleness. Jesus is the perfect bachelor. There. That's not how we present the gospel, my dear brothers and sisters. Jesus is also truly God. Yes, he was a carpenter, but he is also the creator. He is sovereign, holy, high, and exalted. Those who worship him must, must, must not worship any other. There can be no two masters. He is to be the Lord in all areas of your lives. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. Jesus is not mocked. He must be treated with utmost reverence. And he laid down his life for his bride, the church, to be pure, to be spotless, to be without blemish. And so those who call, by, call, call on his name cannot and must not hold on to the sins that put him on the cross. How can you enjoy the sins that Christ died to set you free from? He came first as a savior, and in his return he will come as a judge of all mankind. He was the lamb that was slain, but he is also the lion of the tribe of Judah that has conquered. And so continue to preach, to teach, and to evangelize about Christ, but teach and preach and evangelize about Christ in the way he has revealed himself to be, and not in the way people imagine or desire him to be. Teach and preach and evangelize Christ in the fullness of his loveliness and his holiness in His meekness and majesty, in His humanity and divinity. As the people of Nazareth took offense at Jesus, He said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. In the face of disbelief and rejection, Jesus quoted an ancient proverb that basically is the modern rendition of familiarity breeds contempt. Jesus identified himself with the prophets of the Old Testament that was often despised and rejected when they brought the word of God to the people of Israel. Listen to what is recorded in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 15 to 16. It says here, The Lord, the God of the fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Jesus, as a prophet, as well as one greater than a prophet, the Son of God, the incarnate Word of God, he experienced rejection to the othermost from his hometown, his relatives, from those closest to him, even his own household. It foreshadowed it foreshadowed the rejection and separation that Jesus would go through as a substitute for your sins and for mine. He was a suffering servant who will bear the wrath of God against our sins on our behalf as God the Father turns His face away from Him on that cross. My dear friends, if there is anyone who truly understands the pangs of loneliness or separation, it is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so, if you do experience loneliness and the pain of being mis- and, you, and you do experience the pain of being misunderstood, consider Jesus Christ, the great high priest, who is able to sympathize with all of your weaknesses. If you becoming a believer means being ostracized by your family 
by those closest to you. Perhaps you come, come from a very collectivist culture that it takes a great step of faith to leave that family, to leave that culture, to turn to Jesus Christ. Do it. Do it. Because Christ is, will be able to sympathize with you. Christ will receive you. And He will bless you with His spiritual family. Not that I'm saying to ignore your physical family. Continue to reach out to them. Continue to love them. Continue to pray for them. But take that step of faith. You will be fully accepted in Christ Jesus. Now think about this. Why does familiarity breed contempt? How come the more we know each other, the less patient we are with one another? How come the more we know each other, the more we find each other intolerable? And that is because of sin. It is because of sin. The longer the relationship, the longer the awareness of sins of each other, the easier it is to see that your spouse, your parent, your child, your friend, your sibling, your pastor are far from perfect. But Jesus is without sin. So how can familiarity with Jesus breed contempt? It is because of the holiness and perfection of Jesus. It's His holiness his perfection, His light is like a light, a blazing light that exposes your sin. It exposes the sin of those who encounter Him. And so, John chapter 3, verse 19, Jesus, uh, uh, this is what gospel, uh, God, the author of John wrote. John chapter 3, verse 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. It is because when you love your sins, you will hate the holiness of Jesus. When you love the darkness in your life, you will hate the light of Jesus. But if you believe the good news, if you believe that you cannot do it on your own, you cannot attain moral perfection, you cannot merit righteousness on your own, you can stop your labor and rest in the works of Christ. As you sang today, right, even the best of my works pierce your hands and feet. If you truly believe that and you sing that by faith and you come to Him by faith, He will grant you His holiness and perfection. If you understand that Christ grants you all His goodness, all His benefits, that all your sins are covered, all your blemishes and ugliness that you hide from people, they are covered by His blood. If your familiarity and knowledge of Jesus Christ reveals that God is at work in you through His Holy Spirit to conform you to, into the perfect image of Christ, then this knowledge of Jesus Christ will not, does not breed contempt, but comfort. Does not breed contempt, but comfort. Biblical familiarity with Jesus breeds comfort, not contempt. This applies even to our relationship with one another in the church. When two redeemed sinners learn to view one another, not with a fallen lens, but with the grace of Jesus Christ, Forgiving one another as Christ forgave you. Loving one another as, as Christ loved you. Celebrating one another as Christ celebrates you. The longevity of that relationship does not breed contempt, but comfort. Because we start to know each other, not with a fallen perspective, but with the lens of Christ. The sweetest relationships are the ones united in Christ. And so, may I say that, brothers and sisters, don't may, I may not know you personally, but because I know you of your love of, in Christ Jesus, you are dear to me. That I give thanks to God when I think of you guys. That I know that Pastor Ian, 
you know, your elders, Benji and, 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 and Joel, they're, they're laboring faithfully for your progress in the faith. And that gives me joy and that gives me, that strengthens our relationship, even though we don't hang out. But because we know of our mutual love for Christ, I can trust them. If I have to go for war, I'll pick them. That's the beauty of loving each other in Christ Jesus, having that lens in Christ Jesus. And so my brothers and sisters, let me warn you again, beware of superficial familiarity towards Jesus or else you will breed contemptuous unbelief. But strive for biblical familiarity of Jesus. Labor to know Jesus as he has revealed himself through the word of God and you will find great comfort for your soul. And here's the second warning for us all. Beware of sinful unbelief toward Jesus or else you will forfeit his blessing. Beware of sinful unbelief towards Jesus or else you will forfeit his blessing. Let's continue with verse 5 and 6. And he could do no mighty work there except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of the unbelief and he went out and he went about among the villages' teachings. So what does Mark mean that Jesus could do no mighty work there? Does it mean that Jesus was rendered powerless to do mighty works because the people didn't have faith? It's almost like their faithlessness was like a kryptonite for Jesus. No, it can't mean that. If faith, if faith is always a prerequisite for Jesus to be able to act, then Jesus also could not have been able to calm the storm or quiet the sea because the disciples did not have faith. He scolded them for, being, for lacking faith. If faith is what powers up Jesus for miracles or mighty work, then Jesus would not have been able to raise the dead girl or, or Lazarus back to life because dead people can't think or feel or act, let alone exercise belief. And if you're a true Calvinist, you ought to know that, brothers and sisters. So what did Mark mean that Jesus could do no mighty work in Nazareth? And this is a good time to practice the analogy of Scripture where you use an explicit part of the scripture to understand an implicit part of scripture, where a part of the scripture where it has exp- uh, like explained it very clearly to interpret what may seem obscure. And so it is good to go to Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, and look at what Matthew wrote for his account. In Matthew chapter 13, verse 58, he writes, And he did not do many mighty works there, that is, and Jesus did not do many mighty works there because of the unbelief. Therefore, what it means is that Jesus could do no mighty work because he would not in the face of blatant unbelief and and, and rejection. Jesus could do no mighty work because he would not. Jesus withheld his mighty works from the people of Nazareth out of judgment and mercy. Judgment because of the rejection of Christ and mercy because any further revelation through his mighty works would only incur more condemnation for those who reject Jesus by their unbelief. So you see, this dual forces at work is judgment, but it is also mercy. It's like casting pearls to the pigs. But if I give you pearls, but you don't take care of it, you don't use it properly, you will be held to a higher account. And so... In their sinful unbelief towards Jesus, it was the sinful unbelief towards Jesus that forfeited his blessing. Jesus will not be a miracle worker or a genie in a bottle for those who want trust in him. 
But nonetheless, look here. In his mercy and compassion, Jesus did lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them. And just as the people of Nazareth were astonished at Jesus, Jesus was also astonished at them. Jesus marveled at the unbelief. Jesus was shocked. Jesus was shocked by their callousness and faithlessness. Jesus had already seen a lot of unbelief, and yet the fact that he could marvel at the unbelief of the people of Nazareth reveals the irrationality of sin. Reveals the irrationality of sin. You can never justify the sin of unbelief. The people of Nazareth had 30 years to observe Jesus. He lived a perfect life of obedience and righteousness in front of them. He was without sin in every respect, and yet they completely missed who he really was. They were stuck in this sinful preconception and would not accept the saving revelation from Jesus. They would not believe Jesus, the one from their hometown, a carpenter, the son of Mary, without any education or religious background, of questionable birth is the promised Messiah. And leaving them, Jesus went about among the villages teaching. Notice, Jesus did not let the unbelief from his hometown relatives and household hinder him from fulfilling the mission of God. He continued to preach. He continued to teach the good news of Jesus, uh, good news of the kingdom of God. Jesus did not have an identity crisis because he wasn't accepted or validated by those closest to him. He did not entrust himself to men because he knew what was in the hearts of men. His affirmation is from God who, who has declared, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so his food is to do the will of God. Let us learn from Jesus that obedience to God is not propelled by what people say or what people feel about you. Obedience to God is propelled by love from God, the Heavenly Father, and the desire to please Him. Finally, let us also be warned, whether it be the town of Nazareth, a nation, a church, or a person, if you want to do nothing with Christ, Christ will have nothing to do with you. If you want to do nothing with Christ, Christ will have nothing to do with you. The people of Nazareth rejected the glory of God, and so the glory of God departed from their town. Ichabod. Pray then, it may never be so in plus life and in your life. May we remember to guard against a superficial familiarity towards Jesus, or else we will breed contemptuous unbelief. And may we be careful of sinful unbelief towards Jesus, or else we will forfeit his blessing. Let us pray. O Heavenly Father, God, first and foremost, we thank you for your word that convicts us of sin and of righteousness. We ask that, God, you would forgive us when we have failed to truly know and cherish Jesus Christ. We ask that you would forgive our nation that has used the name of Jesus in vain. We ask that, God, you would forgive us for the knowledge that we have and for not multiplying it, for not growing in it, in our, in our worship and adherence and service of Christ. But Lord, I also praise you and I thank you that you have blessed this church with faithful leaders to feed them and to guard their hearts. And I pray, Father, that their love for Jesus Christ may abound more and more 
with knowledge and all discernment, so that they may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ, for the glory and praise of your name. We ask all this in the name of your Son. Amen. We hope that you were blessed by the sermon today. If you would like to learn about the gospel or know more about our church, please visit pluslifepeople.com. Remember to subscribe for more content. Until next time, stay blessed.